Before we cue the music, we wanted to give a shout out. Jeff Boobles and friend of the show Chad Byer are once again putting on their Mad City Agility virtual conference. They've got a killer lineup with Joe Justice, Karen Tenelius, Johanna Rothman, and Robin Zander. There's even been rumors that you may hear some scrum parody songs from one, <laughs> excuse me, from the one and only Chad Byer during the breaks. Hit up MadCityAgility.com for more information. Welcome to the Agile Wire, where professional scrum trainers Jeff Boobles and Jeff Molesky discuss agile topics. Now, here are your hosts, Jeff Boobles and Jeff Molesky. And we are recording. All right, Mr. Boobles, kick us off, man. All right, so we have Scott Adams on the podcast uh, with us. Scott's a friend of uh, the Jeffs and um, fellow PST, and uh, we are excited to have you, Scott. So, um, Maybe just give our listeners a little background about yourself, and then we'll dive into talking about some different topics. All right. Well, first of all, thank you, Jeff Bubos and Jeff Molesky for inviting me to be here on your podcast. I am Scott Adams. Uh, a little bit about me is I live in Greensboro, North Carolina. I'm a North Carolina boy. Yeah. Born in a little small town called Rayford, right outside of Fayetteville. Most people know Fort Bragg. I normally have to say Fayetteville so people can recognize where on the globe are right, Rayford. <laughs> but I got into Agile maybe seven years ago and worked for some companies and we did some amazing things. And while I was working with them companies, I heard about scrum.org and I wanted to get more on the training side of things. And I became a professional scrum trainer three years ago, well, not three years ago, two years ago. Yeah, I became a PST in uh, December uh, 2019, uh, right before the pandemic hit. And I really didn't do anything with it when I first came a PST because, you know, it was a long road to get there. You know, a lot of studying. I was studying at least four hours per day. And I just wanted to take a break. <clears throat> I took a long break until Jeff Molesky called me and said, hey, Scott. Uh, and he kept pushing me. I mean, this is like, you know, I became a PST in December. And this is like, I want to think the, the time frame was like June or July. Jeff M called me and said, hey, I got this uh, class I want to teach. You want to co-teach? I'm like, uh, let me get back with you. <laughs> but he kept calling. And he finally dumped me down and said, okay, well, whatever. And I had heard of Europe program, but I didn't really know what it was. So I agreed to co-teach with, with Jeff. And as soon as I got on the call that day, I was shocked. I looked around, looking at all the people on the Zoom call, and there was a lot of people that looked like me. Because most of the classes I've seen and participated in, not teached or trained, was very few minorities on there. And this call was mostly minorities. Like, wow. And I didn't know what Europe was at the time. But during the break, I researched it. Yeah, this is an organization that focuses on minorities and bridging the skills and opportunities gap. I'm like, oh, wow, this is dope. And then from that, this is where I land today. It kind of changed my perspective because up until that point, I got into Scrum because of the money, just to be honest with you. You know, I was a traditional project management before I got into Scrum. I looked at, okay, you know, I'm 40-something years old, and I want to look at what's going on in the future. And as I always do, what's going to be the hot and what's going to be not in the future? And I was in traditional project management, so I said, well, I really don't like what I'm doing. I'm tired of doing projects for six months, one year, up to two years, and we get to the end, and it's not what we wanted. And since I'm the face of the project, you know, I don't take ownership of it. Kind of messed with my spirit in terms of I knew I was lying. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like I trade. I, 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 I'm learning to trade stocks now. I guess an analogy to give you in terms of how I felt at that moment is like, you know, when I was doing waterfall methodology and before I became in in the Scrum and Agile space, you know, the project with my Gantt chart would be sexy. I would have nice, sexy graphs. I'm giving my update meetings and everything looks good. But deep in my heart, I know I'm lying. That I know mm -hmm. the project is really not as good as I'm saying it is. And then you get to the end of that project and just like the stock market having a, looked like it's having a green day, but by four o'clock when the, right before the bell hits, it goes from green to red. And since the I'm watermelon the face projects, of right? Yeah, watermelon projects—they're green on the outside, yes. but red in the middle. <laughs> yes. 
So like the stock market getting ready to close, you know, I'm green, I'm green, I'm green. And all of a sudden it turns red and like, what the freak just happened. And as a project manager at that time, for me, I only have 10 fingers. Now I'm pointing 50 fingers. Oh, it was this, it was that, it was that. There was no accountability on my part. And, you know, just listening to all the excuses that goes on as to why we didn't get to uh, something done. And when I found, when I, you know, came across Agile and Scrum, it just made total sense to me that this is the way we should be doing projects, you know, especially when we're dealing with something complex. And again, I got into it for the money, but when I took that class last year with Jeff, it changed me. Because I began, you know, I'm also a professor at uh, Wilmington University <clears throat> and I teach, uh, teach some classes there, teach computer science and also teach uh, uh, Agile and Scrum. But you don't make a lot of money doing that. <laughs> but, you know, but, my passion, but my passion is teaching and, you know, that class is just, it just, and as a teacher, one of the things you look at, Jeff B and Jeff M, is grades. And really what hurt me from that class is after a while, you know, I was excited for the students to become professional scrum masters. I looked mm -hmm. at the grades and I noticed no one even took the exam. Mm -hmm. I called some other PSTs that who, who was doing some training at that time. I said, well, maybe that's just, just an isolated situation. You know, Jeff was great. You know, I just added my little two cents worth because that was my first training opportunity. <laughs> so I was like, I called some other PSTs and did some fishing and, they was pretty much the same. These students yeah. weren't taking the exam. Um, or if they were, like mine, my first one, they were taking the exam, but like the pass rate was so low, and it seemed like it seemed like they knew like the stuff in the class, or they had an idea, but it wasn't it wasn't translating on the assessment. Right, you know? right. Yeah, yeah. If I talk to them one on one, to your point, yes, they would know the information, but you know, when it came to that exam, it just wasn't articulated in the exam. Mm -hmm. And so I, it just died. It was just an observation at that point. Uh, then later that uh, last summer, I called Jeff and said, hey, there was an opportunity for uh, to be a steward for the professional. Uh, let's call applying professional scrum class now. But it was going into rebranding. They wanted a steward last year. And I actually applied for that stewardship. And the reason I applied for it was because that class is the class that we was offering to the year of students. And I wanted to get more into that. Uh, but I guess as fate would have it, I did not get the stewardship, but I guess they can see my passion in the interview that, hey, this guy's really serious about, you know, these children and wants to do something. So uh, I didn't get the stewardship and, you know, I was a little bit upset about that, but I was, uh, you know, cheering on the stewards that came in. They are certainly qualified and doing a fantastic job. And it just died. Then about a month later, I got a call, uh, email first. Uh, from scrum.org say, hey, would you like to meet with uh, Mr. Dave West and Steve Porter? I'm like, okay, about what? Thought I was in some trouble or something. <laughs> 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 and, uh, you know, I mean, I'm just like getting a strange call, you know, okay, it's like going to the principal's office. I'm like, okay, what did I do? I've only taught one class with Jeff. I'm like, oh, was it that bad or what? <laughs> <laughs> so that meeting was about, hey, you know, we, you know, it was highlighted in the meeting what you said, you know, the staff kind of feels like, hey, you know, you really want to participate in this. And hey, would you be interested in doing something? We don't know what that landscape would look like, but we use Scrum to inspect and adapt and we'll run an experiment, see if it works. OK, mm -hmm. great. I would love that. Um, so our first goal when we started was to. Get this, you know, the idea when we sat down before we even started the first 500 cohort last year, right before uh, right after summer, it was in the fall. So we just wanted the first goal was to, hey, what can we do to help the students take the exam? You know, to get them to at least see the value of it and at least try. You get two attempts. At least try. So what can we do? So we brainstorm and we figured, well, let's just try, see if we can do like a little intro to Scrum and see if that will help. And we experimented with there. Were y'all part of the uh, last cohort last year? Yep. Yep, I was. Okay. I just did uh, just this last class probably like two months ago. Okay. Okay. This is the the new cohort. This is the 600. You know, Jeff, after you and I trained last, you didn't do any more training last year? 
Jeff? No. Uh, gotcha. Well, after that, so what we what we did last year uh, with the first group was basically, you know, we got started so late. So I just basically called the PSTs and about 15 minutes before their class, well, well, 15 minutes into their class, I would get and speak a little bit about just giving a value proposition. And at the end of that, you know, we did see an increase in scores. I forget exactly what the numbers are, but it was a drastic difference. And, you know, before we tried this experiment, this experiment and then what we're doing. Uh, at the end and when we had a retrospective. So, and that's where we're at with the first cohort. We just finished the second cohort. So you, you like a lot of great stuff that you were, that you were bringing up there. One of the things is one of the things that just jumped out at me at what you were talking about and reminds me of the conversation we were just having a few weeks ago with Ahmed, um, but like incentives. Money is an incentive. And I and I really appreciate how honest you are in your statement like, hey, I got into it for the money. Uh, and it just reminds me of uh, another great uh, product director that I was working with just a, a few months ago. Uh, we, we were just doing this fun little game, like 30 seconds. Like um, it's this little card game. Everybody gets these random questions. It's just kind of like an icebreaker type activity. Mm-hmm. and. The, the icebreaker question that I got was, what's your primary motivator? And and she just like, psh, like pulling a trigger on a gun. She's like, money. That, that's what I'm in this for. Uh, I was like, wow, like that brutal honesty. I really respect and appreciate that. And it was like, well, how much money are you talking? You know, and she, she gave me a number. I was like, wow, that's, you know. But um, but anyway, I just, I, I really like that authenticity in just being upfront because that's, one, I think that's a driver for just about everybody, but I don't think we we talk about it like that. Like as soon as you bring up money, all of a sudden it's dirty and right. like, oh, that's that's your only incentive structure and that's all you care about. Like, no, no, no. But like I, I give a damn about this because that really right. sets the quality of my life that I'm able to live. I can afford to pay other people to do things that I don't want to do and I can judge the value of my time, right? And so I, I just don't think we should be blind to that being an underlying incentive structure and probably just about everything that we choose or not to choose or not to do with our time. Right. Um but so so kind of where I wanted to go with this this little rant about about money is I know one of the things that you were experimenting with at the beginning was show me the money. Like, why should I give a damn about this right. scrum master certification? Why should I give a damn about this class? Like, yeah, I can be bought into experimentation and inspecting and adapting. But like, mm-hmm. how does that affect my quality of life as a student, as a minority that's going through this class? And that's, uh, right. you know, you you were talking about experimenting like, all right, where are we living? North Carolina. All right, let's jump on the monster.com and look for some scrum master gigs. Oh, look at this one. 80,000 a year. This one, 90,000 a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, that seems like a pretty good damn salary for for just coming out and, and having a scrum master certification and being able to get your foot in the door. Now, not guaranteeing that that's going to be everybody's experience just coming in, but that that that's a career that that you're able to 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 kind of jump right on board with, right? Um, so, you you were talking about these other these experiments that you were running, um, other than this one. And by the way, like I do that now in just normal classes as well. I think by and large, adults that are coming in, they they kind of already know that. But like, start with the why, right? If you're not already starting with that why and why you should give a damn about this stuff, maybe think about it. And that money is probably a primary motivator. Throw that shit up on the screens, you know, right? Show people what they can expect to get out of this. But uh, sorry, you know, Scott, what are what are some other the the uh, experiments that you're running with with Europe? Well, yeah, yeah. We to your point, we use the money as a why you should take it serious. And other experiment we want to now is this is a prime time for graduates to get jobs in this market. Uh, I'm actually doing some one-on-one coaching. Other experiments I'm ran, running with, uh, <clears throat> there was uh, one young lady that really took a liking to Scrum. And she was in one of my classes. And, you know, sometimes you just see that student that's really, really curious. I mean, I don't look at students as smarter or not. I look at them as hungry or not you know you have some that really you know just want to just take it to the next level and she was one of those ones that wanted to take it to the next level and you know almost like a child just you know you know back three years old where you were we at that stage in life where we just ask questions after question after question why is the sky blue because of this why is that why is that she was like that just super duper curious and so i felt well in my mind, at first, I think, well, there's stuff that I can do for her. In my mind, I kind of had a preconceived notion. She's only 18 years old. She's not going to get a job as a scrum master. 
that's I didn't tell her that, but this is what I have in my mind with my coaching stance. Uh, okay, I give it a try. So she walked me through the process. I said, "What do you? How do you feel about interviewing?" Just so I'm a great interviewer. This is the confidence he has, guys. I mean, she's like super confident. You know, I was like, I was like, okay, we're cool. Scratch. I don't have to worry about that. Uh, she was getting ready to do an internship uh, when we first met at the beginning of this year, and uh, she would update me every week. Hey, what kind of scrum stuff would I give? You know, I would turn on to the different scrum.org stuff. She was researching stuff all over the planet. Say, hey, look, you know, you learning per scrum. I recommend you narrow it down. Scrum.org, I believe, in my opinion, has everything that you want to ever know. If you really want to know how to do scrum right. One of the words in what we do is called professional. We are per scrum practitioners and we want to do professional scrum with this sweet 16. So we checked in every week and <clears throat> getting close to an internship. I said, well, how's it navigating? How are you navigating with the company? Fortunately, I worked at Bank of America, so I was able to, you know, hey, maybe you want to talk to this person. Maybe you want to talk to that person. Build that relationship as you go along. And in the end, she got ready for the interview. So we did a mock interview together to get her prepared for the actual Scrum Master interview, getting close to, uh, to the end of our internship. And uh, we practiced for two days. She was super duper nervous, but she... When she was stepped to it, she said she felt great about it. And after we talked about it, I said, well, always, I always go to an interview with the idea of I want to communicate what I want to communicate. I'm going to be true to Scrum. I'm going to be true to the Scrum guy and true to the Agile Manifesto. And the reason I say that is because when we, you know, early in my career, I was taught to you change your resume according to the job you're trying to get. But the beauty, beautiful thing about Scrum is you don't have to do that. I mean, if you're talking, you're only talking about two things, Scrum and Agile. So really, you know, your resume should be catered towards either one of those two documents or both. I mean, I, outside of that, what, is there for, what else is there to talk about? So she did that. <clears throat> and uh, we just wait after the interview. They loved her. She got the job as a Scrum master. And uh so all the experiments I'm running, my biggest thing now, I mean, that's I hadn't had a chance to run any more experiments because, you know, we've been in this uh, process of training 600 students since for the last three months. And we just come into an end of that now. Some of the things I'm thinking about now is, OK, now that we've gone through 600 students that we've trained and many of them still getting certified, what else can we do for them? in terms of really giving them some practice and really honing in on those skills. Because the class does a great job of, as I explain it, teaching you how to ride a bicycle. Now, once you've got off the bicycle and you don't get back on it in no time in the future, then what? You know, you you're not practice, gonna be able right? to like enhance any, that skill. Mm -hmm. Right, you gotta use the skill. Like I think anytime you're having a training, if you say, I'm gonna do this training now and I'm gonna use this six months, a year from now, like you're kind of wasting your your time because you're not going to remember that stuff. You're not it's you're not going to have it fresh in your mind. So they got to use right. it. I would that's what I would say. So how do we get them using it more? Would be the would be the question I would ask. Yeah, and that would be my next question. Do you guys have any ideas? I mean, I'm thinking like I don't know. I'm in my mind. I have something like you know what kind of something that they could do that actually would actually give them an, an experiment in actually using Scrum. You know. You know, we do have those internships that they're, they have those internships that they're going and doing, you know, and they're at great companies like Bank of America and okay. Microsoft mm -hmm. and LinkedIn mm -hmm. and, you know, JP Morgan and, you know, great experience, right? right? Get that on the resume. Mm -hmm. um, but what would be really cool, I think, is if we could get them, if they can pass the assessment, what if we could get mm -hmm. them another internship with a scrum master at one of those companies? A couple months. You know, try it before you buy it kind of thing for the company. Like, let them intern, mm -hmm. let them learn by pair, partnering and pairing. I know when Jeff mm -hmm. and I were first getting into, like, coaching together and doing training together, like, the pairing model worked really, really well for us, right? Like, we level each other up because we were together uh, doing stuff. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And so maybe that's something that would work really well um, if we could get them, you know, a mentor where they'd actually do the job, be a scrum master with somebody. 
right? But Jeff B, how would you bridge that gap in organization? Because, you know, some organizations are going to be thinking about all oh, the liability. And it sounds like you're talking about it's a short-term deal, but would, would there be pay involved? Or this would be a situation whereas, you know, hey, there's an opportunity to get experience here. And that's really what I'm kind of thinking of, the opportunity to get experience. But I'm trying to think, will a company do that, you know, allow somebody to come in yeah. just for the opportunity for experience with all the potential liabilities that may be associated with that? I mean, I, w- I guess I would, I, what I would try to sell the companies on is look at your scrum masters today. How many of them mm. look like these folks? If you add diversity right. to your teams, what advantages are you going to get long-term from that? You know, and I think mm. if you to play that, I think that there's a lot of advantages there, right? A lot of diversity of thought and background and experience that you could bring to the table. Um, mm. And I think that'd be attractive. And I don't know that you'd have to pay like, you know, a full scrum master salary to have two scrum masters. You could do an internship, sure. like a secondary internship, and maybe it's worth the experiment. And then it's like, and think of it as like a low risk experiment. Cause it's like, maybe this is a three month or a six month experiment that you, that a company runs. And mm. then if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Um, but even if half of them work out, like that's, that, wow. that is a good long-term bet, I think for them. That's powerful. I, I, I like I like that. That's beautiful. Another uh, quick thought that I had was, you were talking a lot about that that curiosity um, and how mm-hmm. hungry people are. And e- even myself, I, I think I've joked around about this in the past. But like after I graduated from college, got my first job, I was like, screw this! I'm never having to go and learn a new thing in my life. Right? Like I'm done. That portion of my life is over with. Uh, and it took a really long time for me to figure out how stupid that that mentality was. <laughs> Um, but the, the reason I bring that up is that is one of the things that I try and reinforce in my classes is just exactly what you're saying, that hunger, that curiosity to continue learning. And I think a really great environment to, to continue and foster that is our things like meetups or, or, or user groups or something like that. And so maybe being able to, uh, like, I don't know today if there are general, um, geographical regions that the Europe classes are in. So let's let's just say hypothetically, North Carolina is, is one right. of the areas that you've got a Europe class that consistently is, you're working with. Well, great. What are some Scrum uh, meetup or groups or something in that area that you might be able to get a partnership with and then kind of build that bridge from, all right, well, you just t- took a two-day class and maybe it's going to be a little while till you get that first job, but at least here's an opportunity once a month to get together with other practitioners and have conversations about this stuff uh, and be able to learn from other people and their experiences. You know, maybe you could sign up for Mad City Agile and, uh, you know, attend their, their virtual uh, gatherings because they're all online now. A um, little shameless plug there for you, Boobles. But especially <laughs> especially now because it's all virtual. I mean, they, they've all got laptops already. So um, right. maybe just forming that bridge from where you're at today to something to keep those um, skills fresh in your mind um, would, would be another thing. Yeah, maybe we make those connections because, I mean, just think about the people that are going to those. Usually those are the people that are hungry to learn and improve their knowledge within whatever business right. they're at. And sometimes they're scrum masters, sometimes they're leaders, and hey, maybe they'll know about that old job opening over here at this company or that company. And if they have this relationship with this, you know, person who's got hunger to, to learn and grow in that area, maybe they'll maybe they'll help them, you know, find that that next job too. You know, you never know what doors will open up. So I, I like that idea, Jeff. I think there could be a lot of possibilities. Um, you know, there and you could go to multiple meetups. You don't have to just go to one a month. You know, you could you could find four or five to go. You go to one a week. You know, build up different uh, relationships. Well, that's fantastic. Now, the other experiment I'm running that I've been testing since March is after the applying professional scrum class. I had this cool idea that what if I invite <clears throat> a student from that class to my PSM one class and sit them alongside of people who are actually paying for this training. I ran that experiment running it since March and to my surprise, it actually worked out pretty good because I figured in my mind before I ran this experiment that, Hey, if I put a new person in a room with a very experienced person in my mind, I'm just thinking about their, it will kind of converge that learning and hopefully they would connect the dots. That was my thinking going into it. And actually, they are actually getting faster because when they go into breakout rooms with somebody who is, you know, been in the in the space for 
two, three, five, seven years. At first, they are intimidated. But at lunchtime, you know, I give them a call just to check in, see how they're doing. I'm like, <clears throat> what have you learned thus far? And I get pretty much the same answer. Scott, we all are learning. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. When I had that project management hat on, I had to look like I knew it all. I had to, you know, to put out the, I, well, that could be somewhat inner, inner perceived that I, I felt like I had to act this way and be this way. But in Scrum, you know, I just don't have that, that, that feel that I have to have a mask on and I can just be, hey, look, I can just be open and say, look, I don't know. But we can collaborate and come up with an, a solution and try it. And by the end of day one, they are super duper excited. But before they come to the class, they thinking in their minds, what can I do to contribute to a professional in this environment? They thinking about all these things in their mind before they get to the class. But certainly after they get to the class and go through the first breakout room exercise, they're like, yes, they're back excited and curious. And that seems to be working, working very well. Uh, in most cases, well, the first experiment I tried, it was after people became PSM1 certified. And the way I explain that is the uh, applying professional Scrum class is going to teach you the foundations of Scrum and Agile, but there's a huge piece that they, we do not teach in that class. In my opinion, it's the most important piece, which is the servant leadership. How to be a Scrum master and how do you help foster and create that environment for Agile and Scrum to thrive at its highest level? How do you do that? Unfortunately, we don't have that time to do that in the APS class. What are your thoughts there about that experiment? So I like it. I think here's what I like about it. Anytime you're trying to learn something and level up, you have to have a baseline knowledge with the two people that are partnering together. And so the yes. APS gives them that that baseline knowledge so that they can even they can understand the language, right? Like they can contribute at least yes. at some level. And then you have people mm -hmm. that have some mm -hmm. practitioner level that are trying to get, you know, take that next step. And so they can kind of lift each other up as they're going through it. So I think it's a great experiment. I, th I think for anybody who can maybe past assessment or someone who's just really hungry. Like you just, every single class I have taught with the year up, like you find those few students that are just like, they're on the edge of the seat the whole time. And they're just like, they're eating this stuff up. Right. Yes. And you're just like, yes. wow, I wish everybody was like you, like, and cause you don't get right. that in every class, you know? And, um, mm -hmm. and you know, you, you talk to some of them, you know, one-on-one -on -one, and the story's like this, you want to hire them because they're they're passionate about what they're trying to do, and they're gonna they're gonna they're hungry like you you said. Um, the one person that I remember them telling me a story, they're like, I didn't even know these things were possible. I didn't even know these careers were out there. Like the only people that came to my high school when I was when I was in school were the military, and mm -hmm. that was about it. Wow. Because your two choices were like, basically find some some job in the trades, or maybe go to the military or maybe go to jail. Like that's, that's your options. And like 10 to 20% of the people graduate from my high school. And so it's like, wow, these are like some crazy things. And there's a lot of options out there. And I, I mean, I didn't know these things when I got out of high school, I didn't know these scrum existed. It was so new. Right. But you find right. your way and, but they have just, they've never even seen anything close to it. So um, I think that you were opening their mind and, and they're getting a lot of different exposure to a lot of different things, even if it doesn't click in the assessment, they don't pass the assessment. They've now seen there's different options out there in the world. And I can go down this path if I choose to. So I think even without the past assessment, like we're giving them an option out there or we're exposing them to an option. So Scott, I know you've been doing um, quite a number of these uh, Europe classes, but then also the, the normal professional scrum courses as well. And I'm curious what your your thoughts are, if you've noticed any differences in teaching to younger students, because they're, you know, they're, I think right around 18 to 20 is generally the age range that they're coming in with versus yeah. what I would say our typical demographic for a, you know, a typical professional or a professional scrum master course is probably a little bit older, like maybe mid thirties, uh, some, somewhere in that range. But I would say definitively more on the adult side versus the young adult side. And I'm just kind of curious, like, have you noticed any, any differences there in your, in your, in your, either your teaching styles or the learning styles? Uh, definitely, uh, Jeff Molesky. Uh, yes, I have totally changed my approach. Um, cause it was getting kind of difficult because I, you know, sometimes I will get lost in terms of who's my audience. 
you know, because I, I spent more of my time talking to the students and <laughs> then, you know, I'm in this adult class talking about riding a bicycle. I'm like, you know, <laughs> it's like, okay, what are you talking about? Uh, so I sat down, I stepped back and I said, well, what can I think of a universal story that that's applicable to everybody that everybody can associate it with? So then I began to talk about the applying professional scrum class as what is that like? It's like you're going back to kindergarten class and we all can associate even worldwide what a kindergarten class looks like. What is agile? It's a lot of things, but you've seen agile. And I describe it from the standpoint of, hey, let's go back to a kindergarten class. You may hear some concepts called open space. That's not new. You've seen that before. You've been there before. Where did you first see open space in a kindergarten class? <laughs> no, we didn't have individual desks and cubicles there. So given analogies like that, and I've been also experimenting with Nanamic Fee. To me, in my mind, that is the movie that really embodies what it is as a scrum master we actually do. Mm-hmm. We're not a secretary, you know, when you think about removing impediments, you know, some people have a perception of what that is, but we know as trainers that, hey, that is something that impedes the scrum team from achieving their goals. What does that look like? A big ass oak tree in the middle of the road and the developer's on the way to the grandma house to have a conversation with them. And it's highly unlikely they're going to have a chainsaw or an ax in the back of their trunk. So they're going to call Scrum Master Scott, Scrum Master Jeff, B and Scrum Master Jeff M. Are we going to have a chainsaw and axe in our car? Well, probably not. But we can get on the phone or do something, maybe get ABC Tree Service to come in to help them out on the road. That is an impediment they can't remove themselves <clears throat> for that reason. So I explain things like that, just really just kind of giving something that's applicable to both environments that they can relate to. And staying with one story and making it applicable across the board. I've been experimenting with that for the last four months, Nanny McPhee, and I also used the $6 million man and the bionic woman. Those are, so I'm basically going in, and I found that it's making me even more passionate when I talk about this stuff, because I'm talking about stories and sitcoms that I grew up with. You know, the $6 million man. I love Colonel Steve Austin, the bionic woman. Okay. And I have him, when I sent out my pre-class information, I had him read about Humpy Dumpy, Nanny McPhee, the $6 million man, and the bonded woman. Then when I get to class, I know they look at me like I'm crazy. Why is this guy having me? Then I tell them a story. <laughs> right after the introduction, I tell them a story, and that story tells them, you know, what I learned from Toastmasters is what I'm, you know, I use that three-step approach. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you, then I'm going to tell you, then I'm going to tell you what I just told you. So I intentionally want to repeat myself at least three times so that I can put the learning in their head so that when they go take the exam or back in their working environment, they can kind of use this stuff without even thinking about it, because I repeated myself over and over again. And that's how we learn, because we repeat, 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 repeat. So those four things I have them to do so that when they come to class, I tell that story, they know. And they, they think it's kind of funny, but, and as some of my reviews I'm getting on the class now is, yeah, but I'm taking that exam and I'm doing something at work. I think about what you said. You know, I even talk about my grandmother in, 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 in Scrum. You know, <clears throat> one example of that is, you know, I asked the question, is that what your grandma said? So to paint that picture is like, you know, have you ever had somebody tell you something that you thought was truth, that thought was gospel, and you went and acted on it? And then you get to a moment where you actually read that document yourself and you're like, oh, we all have that experience. And we have a lot of that in this agile community where I believe like, you know, agile coaches and scrum masters, our job is to know the scrum guide and the agile manifesto. And then yet they quoting it like, you know, my grandmother telling me a story about the Bible. But when you pick up that Bible and read it yourself and you go back to grandma and say, grandma, uh, and I'm thinking about Medea as I'm telling the story. You know, Medea quoting the Bible is kind of like that. You know, that's the grandma. Is that what your grandmother said? Well, if we're doing a two week sprint, for example, because I'm, you know, <clears throat> and where Humpy Dumpy comes in in this equation. You know, I just tell cool stories about that. You know, Humpty Dumpty, you know, Humpty Dumpty had a great big fall. They couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again, but I can. So I'm just, and you know, I just do crazy stuff in class, you know. I put on scrubs and I perform surgery with them. And I just have fun with them. I mean, we're in a virtual environment. You just got to have fun with it. So. And it's really about really just being open and just really just challenging the status quo as we teach in class. 
how do you make change in anything? You gotta keep challenging the status quo. Yep. And that's just Go ahead, I was going to say, I, I found that I think it actually made me better for my other classes because I would have to take that step back, like you were saying, like, well, how do we make this universal for everybody? And the, mm -hmm. what I so I, I liked where you were going with some of the different things that you used. I used a lot of sports analogies and mm -hmm. um, I've stepped back and, and really enhanced them and, you know, ask questions like, OK, imagine you're a professional football team. And uh, the way we used to work is we'd plan out all 16 games, exactly what we're going to do, all the game plan. And then we would, and then we just execute that in a row. What problems might we have? And they're like, well, you might be running the ball when it's like third and 15. Like, why would you want to do that? That seems like a bad idea. If you're going to always be doing that, you might be passing the ball when like you should be running the ball because you're up by so much. And then you stop the clock and you let the other team win. Right. Like there's strategy there, right? Things like this happen if you just have a big plan and you yeah. try to follow it to, to a T, right? So then you're like, so what, so what, how can we do that different? And you know, you start with some analogies like, well, maybe we have that game plan, but then what do we need? We probably need to plan for an individual game. We get closer because maybe we have different people playing now. Maybe there's some injuries, maybe some stuff like that. So maybe we should plan for that shorter term thing, like the sprint planning, you know, like that's really what it is. We just plan for that game. And then once we get in the game, Man, we got to change it up. Like, we got to have a huddle. We got to decide what are we doing this play right now, today? What are we doing? You know? And then when we get to the line, guess what? In the middle of the day, there might be things that change. Something popped up. We got to call an audible. We got to do something different. Right. And so, like, you just draw these analogies and they're like, oh, yeah, we do that stuff all the time. Like, sports, but why wouldn't we do that in business? Like, why wouldn't we do that on our teams? And so they, they can, they can draw those connections real, real simple. Right. So I think, um, when you think about it that way, even for somebody who's coming in from maybe more of a traditional approach or if they want to take that next step, they might look at it and be like, oh, yeah, I guess we are just like doing our sprint plan, our game plan. And then we're just following that to a T. Like it's better than following the whole entire season plan. But maybe we should be more flexible. Maybe we need to you know, embrace complexity a little bit more. And so like it helps them to understand that, too. So I think, you know, there's a lot of great things that have come from this class from I always feel like as a, a, a trainer, maybe you feel this, too. Like I gained so much from going through the classes with them and learning from the students because you see something's not hitting or there's got to be a better way to explain this and and you find better ways and i think it makes you a better trainer and a better practitioner um, but hopefully it also helps them uh so tell me some more what are some other analogies or things that you use uh have you, have you used with the your students jeff do you have any other stories or different ways that you've explained certain things in scrum no i was actually just super jealous of your sports analogy um <laughs> the well, you, you're you're really good at this. You 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 always have been. Um, one was just I was actually going to echo or or plus one Scott's. You know, you got to tell a story. Like Jeff is an excellent storyteller and, and does a really good job of communicating that. Um, but we'll come back to your question in just a second because I want I wanted to give uh, some thought here. Um, I was thinking about the other thing that always really stuck out to me when I first started doing the Europe classes was. You know, as a trainer, you've got your stories. You you've got your your toolbox of the stories that you launch into at certain points, and it almost like I don't want to throw shade on it, but it's almost sometimes mechanical. You're like, all right, I'm going to hit this section, and then this is I'm going to do this activity, or I'm going to tell this story to really drive the point home because you've done it so many times. You know what's effective with 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 your students, right? Um, but the big wrench that the Europe program threw into me when I got when I first did it, I was like, holy shit, these. No, nobody's had a job yet. They don't know all of these bad anti-patterns that they're about to run into. And it made me think about my time in the army. And I distinctly remember, you know, speaking um, with, with my cadre, one of the drill, drill sergeants uh, who was there. Um, and when I was going through, I was the old man in, in my, in my company. I was, I, I turned, I turned 30 at basic training. In fact, I had a birthday there. I got knocked in the head. I had to go to the hospitals. I had cake on my birthday. Very infrequently do you get to say when you're going through boot camp that you got cake on your birthday, but I, I was able to do it. Anyway, um, I remember distinctly speaking with the drill sergeant because I was going through getting ready to go to officer candidate school. So we had a little bit less of a rigid relationship there. Um, but he was saying basically basic training is just nine and a half weeks to, to teach you how to shoot a gun. That, that's really what it is. Like, there's a lot of other things that go into it, but you just need to learn to shoot a gun because that's the, the the basic requirement of every soldier from from the general of the army to, to private snuffy just coming in. 
everybody has a basic requirement of having to shoot a weapon. All right. So that's, that's basically what basic is. And he was saying the hardest soldier to teach how to shoot a weapon is one who has shot a weapon before coming in, especially hunters. Um, Cause they have to unlearn all of these um, uh, processes, muscle memory, uh, the approaches that they had beforehand. Right. Um, for, for better or worse, you know, shooting, shooting a rifle uh, is a lot different than shooting an M4. Um, so a- anyway, where, where, where I'm going with all of that is when coming into these Europe classes, it was like even talking about the difference between waterfall and agile or waterfall and scrum, like they, they don't know waterfall. They've never been in these environments and telling them like, imagine working on a project for six years and it never releasing. Like, wouldn't that suck? And they're like, yeah, who the fuck would do that? That sounds stupid. <laughs> like, why would anybody do that? You're like, yeah, it is stupid. Just but like, that's how we used to do things. And like, you've actually got to like paint the picture of the stupidity that goes on in a lot of places um, in order to like tell them why you actually wouldn't do it. Because, and we've talked about this in the past, like once you get into scrum, so much of it just becomes like, yeah, that totally makes sense. We should do it that way. Um, like regardless of the framework and the specifics of it, but like just doing things in smaller batches, getting them out there because of the risk that exists in the world and how things are constantly changing around you. And man, the, the analogy that Jeff had just before, right? Like, why would you plan out your entire season's games and exactly what you're going to do? And then just like pull open that plan before every game or like, all right, well, this is the, this is the game where we're going to do X, Y, and Z. And it's like, well, Hey, but our quarterback got hurt last game. And now we've got our you know, back up in there and it's not so good at these types of plays. And we might want to, whatever, I'm not a sports guy, but like, I, I can understand where you're coming from with it. So anyway, I, I always found that really interesting with, with the students um, because even adults, like they, I think in general, regardless of whether you're in product or it, like we understand big batch, we understand waterfall because that's just been the norm with so much of how we approach things. Um, but with with the students, I don't think they've they've gotten that yet. Like so much of what I think you do in school is fairly small batch, right? Um, you know, each homework assignment is is just a small batch of something that you're trying to get done out there as you're making progress against these bigger goals. Um, so I just sorry long, long rant there, but um, that that was one of the bigger things that I had when I when I started with the year out program. So, you know, maybe getting back to, um, Scott, thinking about the example we talked about before with the pairing with the, you know, internship, if they don't have to retrain them how to shoot that gun to Jeff's analogy before, maybe they can actually like grow at a much faster pace than than a normal scrum master that has these scars from, you know, the old ways of working and wants to maybe go back to that even, you know, subconsciously, um, they don't have that experience. So they're going to only do what you want them to do. You kind of train them the way you want them to be trained. And so... Maybe that's an advantage for these organizations. Like, they're not gonna backslide, you know. I don't know another selling that's point. A light bulb that's beautiful. That's a light bulb moment there. <laughs> beautiful. So, um, Scott, you keynoted recently uh, this is on a diversity and inclusion in Scrum. Tell us more mm-hmm. about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was for the. Uh, <clears throat> Lean Agile Global Conference that was in France, uh, of course, virtually. Um, they've been doing that for years. So I got an invitation to speak there. And uh, of course, I asked, can I speak on whatever I want to speak on? I said, yes, absolutely. <clears throat> because I kind of stay in my lane. You know, some things, you know, I have learned about myself to, to really just talk about those things that I'm passionate about. And, and even Jeff M have seen that in our course of us, you know, you know, talking on a personal level, he's like, yeah, and you know your friend's passionate button. So that is my passionate button. (laughs) So yeah, I spoke on diversity and inclusion from a standpoint of a scrum team. Uh, We know last year with all the things that was happening, you know, the world was made known about some things that happened, you know, specifically, I kind of zeroed in, touched uh, mainly on the George Floyd case, because when I heard that sermon by Reverend Al Shopton in the end, you know, I could re- relate and resonate with that to a degree in terms of, yeah, we can see the police officer with you know, knee on his neck. But in a lot of organizations, as with my skin color, a lot of organizations have their knee on my neck in terms of, hey, 
you know, if I look like Jeff M or Jeff B, I could probably run Scrum the way I, I intended it to. Not to say it's easier for you, but it's a bit harder for me that if I'm going to go to a stakeholder and tell them how or how or not they do what they do in Scrum. Um, so, I, you know, kind of highlight a little bit on that. But I try to make change where I can make change. And I am of the thought that of diversity and inclusion is a concern. But in Scrum, we have a cool idea, concept called the definition of done. That I believe, even though if you're not diversified and included, if your definition of done is robust enough, then we can solve some of the problems that we have in this world. For example, I talk about in the speech about artificial intelligence, specifically facial recognition. Yeah, that could be a diversity and inclusion problem, but in my opinion, it is more of a definition of done problem. And in our class, in the PSM1 class, we give the, the slide that I'm visualizing where we're building a medical device to go into your mother, your father, your sister, your brother, your child, your pet, or whatever it may be. Our definition of done should be thought of like that. And you bringing it home to you building this idea, widgets, offering a service, or whatever it may be, <clears throat> for a family member for to use. Would that change your mind how you release whatever it is you release. So I go a little bit deeper and I talk a little bit about facial recognition. Unfortunately, last week, there was a young lady in Detroit, teenager, minority. She went to the skating ring just like anybody else. I didn't talk about this in the speech, but this is just current news. It's kind of give you an idea of what I'm talking about with facial recognition. Uh, in the speech, I talked about facial recognition in the airports, whereas, <clears throat> Last time I was in the airport last year before the pandemic, I got this hat from my fraternity brother because it looked like he was getting ready. He was having a bad, bad day. In his mind, he thought he was being discriminated against. But I knew that the cameras didn't, didn't recognize him from the facial recognition in the airport. And security was coming on him pretty, pretty quickly. And at that moment in time, I wanted to take the courage to, hey, if I can do something to calm the situation down, all I wanted was the guy to get home to his family. He didn't know. In that instance, he thought he was being discriminated against. You know, he's getting irate, security doing their job, trying to keep him calm. <laughs> he's getting higher and elevated because he's thinking he's more, even more discriminated against. I went and whispered in his ear. I said, look, man, I need you to calm down. This is hat. You know, we fraternity brothers. I'm your fraternity brother. I want you to make sure you get home. So I calmed down. And I whispered in his ear. I said, you know, <clears throat> just calm down. Then I stepped back from him because, you know, when you grab people like that, you don't know how they're going to respond. So that's why I whispered in his ear to acknowledge who I am. So I stepped back to give him some space. And I asked him so, a couple of questions. Do you have an iPhone? He's like, yes. Look at me, stupid. Like, why are you asking about an iPhone, man? You see what, the, what, I'm, what I'm going through right now? <laughs> I said, does your iPhone have facial recognition? He said, yes. I said, does it recognize you? He said, sorry. Pausing for him as he's calming down now, de-escalating the situation. Man, you know what? As a matter of fact, it don't. <laughs> what do you think that camera is? Facial recognition technology. Amazon, Microsoft, all these companies know they're putting technology out there for 100% of the population to use, but it's only good for 80%. To me, the first thing I would look at is the definition of done. Because if your definition of done is actually going to put a robust product out there for everybody to use, then everybody will eventually use it. Now, I understand if we just released this technology. But in my research, I discovered there was millions of articles about this dated back from 10 to 20 years ago. <laughs> so Amazon, Microsoft, y'all know about this problem 10 and 20 years from now and you and you saying your definition of done it is OK for this to go on. And now pulling it back to the diversity and inclusion, that was a piece of that speech. And then the diversity and inclusion, I'm like, yeah, diversity is easy. That's, you can just go hire, you know, hire somebody that don't look like you, talk to you, blah, blah, blah. But I think the challenge for scrum teams now is going to be the inclusion piece. Why? Because all these people who are witnessing these injustices go on could be on your scrum team. And how are you going to manage that? How are you going to manage those different personalities? And one of the pictures I put up was, you know, at Christmas time, I had my little niece over for Christmas. 
And as continuously pointed out that picture, uh, she's a little girl, and Christopher was opening up his gift. It was our niece. She was over there. And I felt, felt the artist could recognize and relate to Amy. Well, she, number one, because she's a girl. And then also Christopher. So Christopher was sitting there opening his gifts in this picture. And I just posed the question of, what do y'all see wrong with this picture? And he's all excited to open up his Christmas gift. And she's just sitting there like, this is a steel picture. She's just sitting there like, so I expanded upon that and sharing some of my experiences as an African-American in, in this environment. And that a lot of times I go to meetings, I may see people look like Jeff M and Jeff B on the call. And y'all could be the center of the show doing all the talking. And I'm sitting there. I want something to say, too. But I don't really feel comfortable because there's probably a time that I actually said something that I wasn't. It wasn't a good experience for me. Almost like a kid. The mama told me if you touch the stove, you will get burnt. I touched it and I got burnt. Now expand upon that. What does that mean? We all have been burnt in some kind of way. That's something that we did that we didn't feel good about, that we're really going to have to work hard to do that again. But we're going to have to have an environment that's really comfortable, and I can trust you for me to open up in such a way for me to do that again. So that's why I think the inclusion piece is really going to be the key to it all for us to really make amazing products that really are robust and things like that so that we can get rid of some of these problems that you think about facial recognition, somebody's gonna die as a result of that. I mean, think about that 14 year old, just wanna go to a skating ring, just like anybody else on the planet and enjoy skating. She touched the fire, she touched the stove, and she's probably burnt for the rest of her life as a result of that action. They kicked her out, they banned her from a skating ring. Can you imagine that? You go, you're just going to hang out with your friends, buddies, whatever, facial recognition, recognize you to be some prisoner or whatever it is that you're not and you're scarred for life. So I was very passionate <clears throat> and you know, uh, that's what I spoke on. I didn't pull any, uh, didn't hold anything back on that because that was a, certainly a serious topic for me. Uh, diversity and inclusion for a scrum team was the title of that. That's just a few things I want to highlight there. Inclusion is the biggest please. When, I, when I'm a scrum master on my team, I'm really looking for that person. And what I found in my experience, Jeff B and Jeff M, is that most problems that the team have, or in terms of if we're looking for a solution, in my experience, is typically that person that's quiet on the team, that ain't said nothing, they have a solution, a better solution than what all of us are talking about. But they don't feel comfortable talking about it because something has happened in their past that they're just going to keep it quiet. And that's why I was just glad I discovered it was introduced to liberating structures because I use those a lot because I'm always thinking about that person who was not included, who's not yet comfortable opening up, speaking to the team, like as you can see everybody else. Some people just automatically, you know, you got different personalities and everything. Some people just automatically feel comfortable in the environment. Other people, you're going to have to, with me, I'm going to have to warm up in some environment. I just ain't going to come in, no, nah. <clears throat> because I've been burnt a lot. In some organization, when I speak about Agile and Scrum, I can say the same thing as my white counterparts say. And he's saying the wrong thing, and I'm saying the right thing. Organizations and, and stakeholders are eating this stuff up like it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. I'm over here speaking the truth, and I'm, you know, I got to start not talking, hey, finding another job because I spoke my mind. And I'm speaking the gospel as we all Scrum masters are speaking the gospel. Unfortunately, I, I have to figure out a different way to approach some situation. But the problem with that is you don't know how to approach the situation when you have courage. Your courage is a tricky thing. <laughs> some people can be super duper courageous and have the courage and speak their mind. Others, if they speak their mind, there will be consequences. So inclusion is a big deal. I think that is one of the things that's going to stop a scrum team or stop companies from really putting out robust products, services, therefore, not diversification. Mm -hmm. Diversification will help with inclusion. <laughs> yeah, you bring up a lot of interesting points because diversity is easy, right? You hear about that all the time. Well, yeah, we need a cross-functional team. Most teams want to do that. They try to fit get different skill sets, different people with different yeah. backgrounds, right? Like that's pretty easy, but the inclusion part. And I wonder like, yeah, I, I didn't even think about those examples before that you're talking about. Like people, the, the people on the scrum team, 
or whoever created that, the, the facial recognition software that you're talking about before, my guess is they did not, they don't know the impact of their work. They don't know, like, I don't know, let's just say there's so many points that it has to recognize in somebody's face before it says it's a match or not a match. They don't realize like, yeah, if we can't match certain and we say, yeah, we're going to skim it down to a minimum number and it right. matches it to a wrong person in some cases, what's the impact of that? And especially in different contexts. Um, and so maybe that's that's part of it. I, I'd be curious to know, like, what those teams actually look like, like how close to the customers are they? How aware are they of these issues that come up, you know? Um, where is there another right. option and they chose this option? Like, could you just do a not match and just show that, you know, like if you can't get a match, you can't get so many points. Um, and then the inclusion part. Yeah. I, it, you know, I, I, it's hard, I think for someone like Jeff and myself, where you say, well, you, you can't say the thing that I can say. And I guess I don't know that. Right. I think there's a lot of things that's like, it's hard to hear things no matter who says them. And um, I don't know if it would be different if one person said or another. It's hard to it's hard to know that I guess for certain. I guess that's what I struggle with, you know. Mm -hmm. I've lost three jobs this year because I spoke my mind according to the scrum guy. So at some point in time in life, you 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 have to make a choice. I have to sleep at night. Do I worry about the job of saving my job, or do I worry about? really making this environment good for the scrum team and really try to create this environment, which as a scrum master, I volunteer to take this position in any other position on the planet. Why? Because I want to make a difference. Mm -hmm. uh, and it can be done, but, and that's why I'm focusing more of my attention on the younger people now, because to your point, Jeff, I mean, you kind of gave me a, Jeff B, you kind of gave me an aha moment. As I'm probably going to stay even more time with the young people. I have this idea that, yes, the older people really much in the corporation are going to have to die before Agile and Scrum really manifest and be what it was designed to be. Because projects are failing, company. Why are y'all still doing this dumb and stupid shit? You know, why you want Scrum Masters to track developer progress? What sense does that make? And Jeff, I like, I like you because you, you kind of, you, you practical. I mean, an example I give in classes, you know, an easy example I give in classes, Scrum is like we do things in normal life, to Jeff M's point. I like that highlight. And I give the example in class that, hey, if you're a homeowner, you want a debt built on the back of your house, you're going to hire carpenters to come in and do that. Carpenters and all the developers in Scrum. Well, when I was married, my wife typically was the product owner. I was the Scrum master. You know, what What would it sound like if she come to me? I'm drinking my beer, talking to y'all. She come in here and say, hey, uh, baby, when would the carpenters be done with the deck? Like, hell, I don't know. I'm here on the call talking to Jeff B and Jeff M. Why don't you go outside and ask them? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, hell. I mean, damn. I mean, why do why you need a scrum master tracking team performance? But yet, in most environments I go to, that's the first thing they ask me. Uh, scrum master track team performance and the scrum master's tracking progress towards release. I'm like, damn, what the product owner doing in your environment? Damn, what the developers doing? I mean, shit, that's an easy job. But then you go and challenge, challenge the status quo, then damn, we're looking like me. You got to be careful with that shit. I mean, that's what I'm saying. It's like, you know, I'm saying, you got to be careful. And it's like, damn, it's like, you know, in, in my skin, you have to like live two damn people. I'm like, well, damn, okay, do I say something? Do I not? You don't know which way to go. I just want to go to a meeting like you, you both, and say what the fuck is on my mind. <laughs> that's it. That's it. That's it. <laughs> I, Scott, I I love it when you you start getting fired up, man. Like, because you you and I have had some some pretty good conversations uh, on the phone, and I and I, <laughs> sorry, I'm over here just cracking up because I can tell when you get super passionate about something, all of a sudden, like you start talking like me, man, and I and I'm dropping f bombs left and right, but um, <laughs> but you know, taking taking a quick step back here. These types of conversations, um, and, and I just want to be authentic, like it's a lot of the times I feel insecure in having them because I only know what I know. Um, and I haven't been exposed to the types of experiences that you have been exposed to. And regardless of whether that's because of the color of your skin or your uh, income class, how you grew up, your uh, the number of siblings that you had, your family, did you have a mom? Did you have a dad, right? Like there's so many things that go into it. Um, and you were saying earlier, like diversity is the easy part. Um, 
you know, I, I, I think there, I, it's not that I disagree with that statement, but I don't want to, um, diminish the value of having that diversity because I'll be super blunt. Like I don't have a lot of friends in life. Uh, You know, Jeff, probably one of the primary reasons Jeff and I still talk is because I sucker him coming into a podcast every once in a while with me. Uh, Scott, you and I've got a pretty good relationship, which is honestly a little bit ironic because I don't, I just don't talk with people a lot of the time, but you're the only black person that I know. And if I don't talk with you and I don't hear these types of experiences, like I just live in my own little Jeff bubble where life is good and I don't really have to worry about anything. Um, I have a little bit more of experiences with, you know, my wife is from India, um, same with my niece. And so they have different experiences that they can talk to. But that that diversity aspect, like, again, I just don't want to undervalue it because I think the different experiences that people bring to the table form us to exactly what you were saying earlier is like, I never would have thought of having in my definition of done, this should, this shouldn't be a problem for people of color. Like if, if we're working on that facial recognition technology and it's not necessarily because I'm a bad person, it's just, that doesn't really enter into my concept of being like, when I look in the mirror, I think of me, I, you know, that's who I see every day. And again, like, it's not because I'm a bad person. I just don't have these other experiences. And so that's where I feel like there's the value of the diversity, making sure that we're getting those other ideas from people, bringing those other experiences to the table so that we can have a more robust definition of done so that we can deliver a better product. So we don't think about things that we just don't even haven't experienced in life. That's a great point. So I was thinking about something that um, Dave Dame, who's going to be on the podcast coming up here again soon, uh, but we had him on one of our early episodes, and uh, Dave has cerebral palsy, and so he's an agile and had to inspect and adapt and figure out different ways of living life that we all take for granted uh, throughout his whole entire life, and um, and he is really. Um, He's now working at Microsoft and he's helping them figure some of this stuff out. Like, how do we how do we make things that work for everybody? You know, no matter what your skill set, you know, no matter where you come from, different backgrounds, you know, different accessibility levels, things like that. And I'm wondering, like, he always says this, like he's always he's pretty active on Twitter and he's always like, well, just spend your money where especially people that are in these these classes, spend your money on the companies that are taking this stuff into consideration. Don't spend your money on the ones that. It doesn't work for me because I've got this thing. Because if you don't change where you spend your money, there isn't a financial reason for the companies to make that new feature to add that extra X, Y, or Z. And so I guess maybe that's part of all of us is just not spending the money on the things that are incomplete or that you know seclu- you know exclude people. And I think maybe there's some awareness there of what of no, knowing when certain things do exclude people, so that you know maybe people can change their buying habits. I mean, it's something we can talk about, right? Like knowing, like, I didn't want to know, like, hey, facial recognition doesn't work in an, an iPhone. Like, it works for me. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I wouldn't have known it doesn't work for everybody um, unless unless you told that story, Scott. So I think telling those stories does help. Uh, maybe people will make different decisions. So I guess at this point, Scott, uh, you know, we've been recording for a while. Uh, is there anything you want to plug or promote to our listeners? Plug, no, just, you know, keep challenging the status quo. I mean, I would say one of the things that I am working on in my life, well, I think, you know, going back to Jeff M's and both of your points, diversity is needed. The, the more diverse we are, I think we can get to a better and best product. That is a way. But in that process, don't forget about inclusion. Uh, I actually am working on myself and pushing myself. I always challenge myself to go talk to somebody who doesn't look like me, act like me, so that I can help within myself in my own mind, with my own perspective, because as Jeff M identified, that if I only know one way, I only know one way. So I actually go out here and try to talk to other people with different flavors. And, you know, I used to be a perfectionist and to help me, uh, for example, I used to be a perfectionist and to help me stop being a perfectionist, I go talk to a free willy person. A perfectionist can't stand a free willy person. That person looks like they don't have a plan. They can just do anything or they just go with the flow, no plan for the day. But I used to think like that. But if you really want to expand your perspective on things, why don't you go talk to a free willy? And say, free willy, how, how do you do that? I mean, 
and, and what you will find when you do that, Free Willy has a plan too. He just doesn't play it like I do. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so you begin to have those conversations like, oh, your mind and your, your mind tell you that we are different. But when you have those conversations, you find out so many commonalities between the two of you. You think alike. You have the same fears. You know, you like a lot of the same things, but it only happens when you talk to people and you really want to get to know them. We all people. <laughs> So I would leave that to the audience that, hey, I'm, I'm trying. Don't blame it on my head. Anything I've said that might offend anybody. Uh, don't blame it on my heart. Blame it on my head. That certainly comes from a place of love. But thank mm-hmm. you, gentlemen, for having me here. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Agile Wire. We are consistently inspecting and adapting ourselves. We would appreciate feedback at feedback at theagilewire.com or on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play Store. See you next time.